This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 21st of January 2023 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House here in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. It's the 21st of January and coming up, we'll have a look through the front pages with Charles Hecker, then... Changes in the artistic industry, in our politics and in our lifestyles are all proudly on display at London Art Fair. We'll take a closer look at those changes at one of Britain's premier cultural events. And in an interesting juxtaposition between God and Mammon, we hear from a monk at the World Economic Forum. That's all coming up here in the next 30 minutes. But first, the news. Western allies meeting in Germany on Friday failed to reach a decision on supplying Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine to boost its firepower for a spring offensive against Russian forces, with the United States urging Kyiv to hold off from mounting such an operation. Pledges were given for large amounts of other weapons, including air defence systems and alternative tank models. Dozens of Peruvians were injured after tensions flared again last night as police clashed with protesters in anti-government demonstrations that are spreading across the country. The unrest followed a day of turmoil on Thursday when one of Lima's most historic buildings burnt to the ground as President Dina Bluate vowed to get tougher on vandals. And Chris Hipkins, who played a significant role in New Zealand's response to the COVID-19 pandemic, is set to replace Jacinta Ardern as Prime Minister after emerging today as the only candidate to lead the ruling Labour Party. Hipkins is expected to be confirmed as the new leader at a meeting of Labour's 64 lawmakers tomorrow. Well, let's have a look at the day's papers now with Charles Hecker, who's a senior partner at Control Risk. Good morning to you, Charles. Good morning, Georgina. Charles, I think we have a similar morning routine in that one of the things we do, or at least I do very first thing in the morning, I don't know when you do it, is Wordle. I'm an evening Wordle person. Oh, really? It's a relaxing thing for me, so I do it to unwind. Okay, I do it to kickstart my brain very first thing. I do it in the car that picks me up at quarter to six in the morning to bring me to Monocle. Uh, and... Um, Sometimes it's quite disappointing because I've done it by the time we get to the end of my road. You know, um, this <laughs> that's morning, impressive. This morning I am on my fifth go, and I've got four letters. You think it would be really easy to get the fifth? I hate those wordle ones where it could be judge or nudge or fudge, and you keep going and going and going, and then you get to the bottom and you don't know what to do. It's uh, awful. It's it's really annoying. Isn't yeah. <laughs> Good luck. Um, Take a deep breath and take it slow. But you know what? Thank you so much to the New York Times for that because I love Wordle. It really does. Uh, um, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a great, it's a great puzzle. Uh, let's talk about the New York Times, though, and their coverage of what's going on with Ukraine, particularly uh, as it pertains to, to tanks. Now, yesterday we were reporting, as indeed we were in our headlines today, about this row. Germany uh, says it'll only send tanks if uh, America sends uh, its M1 Abram tank, which, of course, is hugely sophisticated and probably not suitable. A big meeting yesterday at um, uh, uh, at an airbase in Germany, the, the US airbase. Uh, 
50 or more people, defence ministers, uh, NATO, all sorts, came together to talk about this, and they just didn't come up with a resolution, did they? That's right. We're going we're gonna to dive into the story that you alluded to at the very top of the news broadcast, and that is that there were the entire Western alliance gathered at Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany to discuss sending weapons to Ukraine, and the New York Times tells us allies fail to agree on sending tanks to Ukraine. And what this all boils down to is German Chancellor Olaf Scholz saying no to sending Germany's leopard tanks to Ukraine. And not only will Germany not send those tanks, but Scholz additionally said that he will not approve any other country that currently has leopard tanks, including Ukraine's neighbor Poland. He will not allow them to sell, send the tanks either uh, because Germany controls um, the destination of all of its weapons exports. Um, this move came in for very strong, very sharp criticism, and in some cases, especially from allies in Eastern Europe, condemnation. Um, Schultz is being warned about how history will remember him um, when they talk about who supported Ukraine at its most critical moment. Well, let's talk about history, because, of course, the Battle of Kursk was the largest tank battle uh, in history, involving, I think it was 6,000 tanks, 2 million troops, 4,000 aircraft. It was the end of the German offensive capability on the Eastern Front. It cleared the way for the great Soviet offensives of 1944 and 1945. So perhaps that's why... Uh, Germany is is so reluctant to do this. I mean, uh, Schultz himself said that uh, he he uh, his caution is rooted in in Germany's bloody twentieth century history. That's right. There is this ongoing skepticism or suspicion or caution um, in Germany about provoking Russia, and and every country that is supporting Ukraine is concerned about escalating the crisis beyond a point that is controllable. Um, Germany feels for some reason that sending these extremely sophisticated tanks, the Leopards, um, onto the ground in Ukraine would be a significant poke in Russia's eye and could provoke, you know, provoke an escalation that would be hard to unwind. And what's been happening is that the rest of Germany's allies, the rest of Ukraine, Ukraine's allies have been have been trying to build a comfort zone around Germany. The UK is sending Challenger 2 tanks. The United States is not going to send the Abrams now or for the foreseeable future, but it's sending heavy artillery and it's sending um, armored personnel carriers, and it's certainly not being stingy in, in the military, humanitarian, or financial support. And everyone is trying to encourage Germany, saying, you're not in this alone. Don't worry. We're all sending heavy artillery to Ukraine. So you're not a standout. And, and Schultz refuses to bend. Um, he just will not take that step um, in sending this sort of sophisticated weaponry onto the ground just yet. I mean, I think that's got quite a lot to do with his domestic politics, though, hasn't it? I mean, there are so many within Germany who absolutely oppose this. And it looks like the brand new defence minister, uh, Boris Pistorius, does too. Well, that's right. So, so domestic politics are sort of going back and forth on all of this. And Christine Lambrecht, who was the defence minister until last week, was was seen as a bottleneck and was seen as somebody who was preventing this from happening. And in the day or two when there was a vacancy in the defense ministry, speculation was fairly intense that actually whoever came next might allow this. And then Boris Pistorius comes into office and decides to continue the policy that, that his predecessor has set, which of course is dictated by Schultz anyway. And the change in personnel at the ministry didn't dictate a change in policy. 
and huge frustration from Ukraine because some of those tanks could be delivered very quickly. That's right. Um, and and this is there's a sense of urgency coming out of Kiev because everyone is anticipating that come springtime, Russia is going to mount a major offensive. So the thinking is now is the time to fortify Ukraine, although, you know, the delivery time on these are, is fairly far in advance. It's not like sort of Amazon overnight delivery. Um, it takes quite a long time to get these tanks prepared and on the ground, even the ones that are in neighboring Poland. And to train the personnel. And to precisely yeah. right, and to train the people who are going to use them. Um, but there is incredible pressure coming from Kiev because of this looming springtime offense. So this is the time to arm Ukraine. And it's also seen as a time to try to substantially weaken Russia so that some of the air comes out of this anticipated offense in a few months. Uh, it's it's a fantastically complicated story, which we are going to continue to, to follow. I mean, it's governed by so many different moving parts. Um, uh, and as you say, a lot of other weapons, though, were, were actually decided upon, confirmed on, on uh, Friday. That's right. Um, the, the Western supply chain of, of military equipment heading towards Ukraine so far is essentially continuing unabated. Um, over the long term, you have to wonder how much longer this will last, how, much, how quickly can Western weapons suppliers replenish their supplies um, and at what cost. Um, but you know, amid this sort of stumble in, in the alliance's unity about supplying Ukraine with heavy weapons, um, there was once again a restatement of, of conviction among Ukraine's partners that, yes, OK, we're not going to do this with the Leopard tanks at the moment, but we're still here. We're still united. We're still behind you. Uh, and, and so, you know, sort of two steps forward and one step back. Uh, Charles, just before we leave the subject, do you think that this is going to perhaps provoke some kind of split within NATO? I mean, could Germany be completely sidelined here? That's the speculation. And, and some of the harsher criticism leveled at Germany as a result of this decision is whether Germany remains a reliable defense partner. And that is, you know, if you're counting on support from Germany in a future conflict, will they deliver? Um, there are tiny cracks in the alliance. They're being papered over very, very quickly. Um, but this is something that's going to have to be managed going forward. Yeah. Let's go back to our headlines, because, of course, another story that we've been reporting on is Chris Hipkins, who uh, is going to be taking over from Jacinta Ardern as the Prime Minister of New Zealand. Uh, lots and lots of reactions to her standing down, mostly positive, because a good leader is also a leader who knows when it's time to go. That's right. We're going to The Guardian now that says Chris Hipkins set to become next Prime Minister of New Zealand. And so congratulations to Mr. Hipkins, but I suppose also a little bit of, of sympathy because he has got some very big boots to fill. Um, Jacinda Ardern's tenure as Prime Minister in New Zealand has roundly been viewed as a huge success. She has become an international superstar. Um, she has led a, a crisis hit uh, Prime Ministership in certain cases, of course, with the COVID pandemic um, and the Christchurch mosque shooting. Um, she has, she's widely seen to have handled all of these events beautifully um, and has been to the White House and she's spoken at the UN and she's become a global political superstar. So here comes Chris Hipkins. Uh, and he is a lifelong politician, genuinely viewed, generally viewed as a safe pair of hands and someone who can step into the job um, without missing a beat. He's the current education and policing minister, which is an interesting combination of responsibilities. <laughs> uh, and... Um, you know, has been at her side throughout all of these crises. So he's ready to go. And that's probably a good thing for his party because elections are coming in October and the Labour Party's ratings are 
dropping in the polls. Yeah. Uh, now, he was also the person who was the sort of main architect of New Zealand's COVID programme. That's right. Every time Jacinta Ardern um, took to the airwaves to talk about the country's COVID management programme, he was right there at her side and at the podium and speaking with her. Um, and what The Guardian tells us is that, by and large, this has been a good thing because the country's COVID, ma- COVID management uh, policy was seen as a success. Um, it had a couple of important setbacks. And it's also generated, The Guardian tells us, um, it's generated a very prominent and vocal anti-COVID, anti-vaccine, sort of COVID skepticism community. Um, and they're having a go at Hipkins now that he's becoming prime minister because of how prominent he was in the COVID battle. Mm. I mean, one interesting thing, where, particularly when you look at sort of global politics recently, is that people tend to vote for somebody with name and face recognition. And that's one of the reasons Hipkins may be uh, popular, because they have seen him on television night after night talking about COVID. That's right. So, so Hipkins domestically is an extremely known quantity and a known brand. I guess the flip side of that is outside of New Zealand, has anybody ever heard of, of Chris Hipkins? And, and what happens to New Zealand um, you know, as, as a global sort of beacon um, without Ardern. And, and interestingly also, and this isn't addressed in The Guardian, um, and I suppose that there'll be, you know, dozens of articles yet to be written, but what does one of the world's most famous politicians do as a second act now that she's stepping down? And you're absolutely right to point out that she picked her moment. Um, and so she will choose her future and it will be interesting to think, to, to see what that is. Mm. I mean, I'm sure for the moment, perhaps, it, as, as she said, she's going to take her little girl to her first day at school. She's going to get married. But I think watch this space. We're going to see her come back in a major global position, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she'll have to get out of the way to allow Hipkins to govern. Um, you know, you really have to sort of once you step down, you step down. Um, but, you know, she said there's no gas left in the tank for her to be prime minister of New Zealand. And that's why she stepped down, um, you know, an incredibly personal appeal about about how she was feeling. Um, But there has got to be she's only in her early 40s. There's got to be gas that she can put back into the tank for what I think you accurately suggest will be a global role. Mm. I I loved Helen Clark, too, one of the the former prime ministers of New Zealand. I was working for a Zimbabwean radio station and I was trying to get an interview with her and I called her office and sort of left a message and left my number and everything carried on my phone rings. Hello. Uh, hello, it's Helen Clark here. And <laughs> what? You called me back personally? <laughs> Great New Zealand accent. That was impressive. <laughs> but I, I was terribly impressed with her. It's just like, you know, I didn't go through this layer of, you know, other people. She just called me straight back and did the interview there and then. It, it's wonderful when politicians lack the pretentiousness that often attaches to the office. And maybe that's something that comes out of New Zealand being um, a small country that genuinely um, punches above its weight globally um, because of its role in international affairs and the roles that, it, that its leaders have taken. Yeah. Well, let's look at international affairs because, of course, uh, Davos finished yesterday, the economic World Economic Forum. Uh, and among the usual top business leaders, world leaders, experts and activists was a special guest, Japanese Buddhist monk Shukai Matsumoto, who's released a number of books. One of them, A Monk's Guide to a Clean House and Mind, has been translated into almost 20 languages. Well, nowadays, he calls himself an ancestorist, someone who works to create a bridge between past and future generations. And it's this kind of extremely long-term thinking that he wanted to teach to the leaders he met in Davos. Well, Monocle's Marcus Hippie interviewed him at WEF. So this is my third in Davos. And I was 2015 
I was as a young global leader, but now, last year and this year, I am a member of civil society. So obviously, in the in the concept of multi-stakeholder, you know, inclusion, this forum, yes, the title of this forum is World Economic Forum, but the, the economy today uh, must include more diverse uh, stakeholders, right? Not only business or uh, government, but the civil society, right? So that should be one reason I'm here. And also, business world is now more short-sighted. Yeah, so now we have to tackle the global issues the, like climate change, which takes time to be addressed, right? So planting trees, for example, you need to, you know, take time. So if you plant a tree, you won't be the beneficiary of that, right? So the, the future generation. So I think my mission here is as an ancestorist to invite people, those invisible from the past and from the future as a very important uh, stakeholders. And do those business leaders listen to you? Yes. I won't say everybody listens to me, but still, yeah, so I have a morning meditation session and I try to make it relevant to the theme of this meeting, cooperation in a fragmented world. And so the, my meditation session is meditation with ancestors, right? So many people come and uh, they're really serious about practicing that and uh, to invite invisible people from the past and from the future into this you know, meeting. So, Can you try to explain on radio how you meditate with your ancestors? All right. So I would uh, make it simple. The simplest way to practice that is just contemplate with this question how can we become better ancestors how can we become better ancestors i think it's very inspiring leadership question which expand your time frame longer and broader what would that mean in practice when you see these business leaders over here how would you like them to change their lives or what they do so it is interesting that interesting and strange that uh, you know in this age of long life you can live you live hundreds of years right but people are more busy right and don't have time why so yeah my my role as an ancestor is is uh, to invite people to think long with more, you know, more attention to the environment and the nature uh, which you miss in the urban life. So, yeah, I try to keep inspiring people uh, with this question, how can we become better ancestors? And you certainly do. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. 
Shukai Matsumoto there speaking to Monocle's Marcus Hippie at the World Economic Forum in Davos. Shukai, of course, a Japanese monk. Uh, and I think we'll stay with Japan uh, to uh, discuss our next bit uh, with Charles Hecker, senior partner at Controllers, who's still with me. Uh, Charles, the Japan Times uh, is talking about chips, uh, not the edible type. No, these are the silicon chips that you find in everything that you do in your life these days, including the mobile phone that you may have in your hand or the laptop that you've got in front of your face, or really just about everything from the simplest sort of coffee pot um, to the most sophisticated weaponry, as we were discussing earlier. Um, And so we go to the Japan Times with a fairly prominent story here that says Japan's chip czar, so bear in mind Japan has a chip czar, backs U.S. push to contain Chinese hegemony. Um, And the reason why this is an important story is because of the role that these semiconductors do play in our lives. They are so entirely ubiquitous to the way that everything works that whatever country and whatever company controls the semiconductor industry or at least plays a critical role in the semiconductor industry controls a lot about how the world works and how the economy spins. And so this story comes on the back of Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida's trip to Washington and and a seat in the Oval Office um, and a meeting with U.S. President Joe Biden. This is one of the things that the United States and Japan discussed during that series of meetings. And what um, the J- Japan's chip czar is saying, his name is Akira Amari, and he is the main architect of Japan's policy on semiconductor technology. He's saying a few things. He's saying that Japan and the U.S. need to work together. Um, against China's emerging superiority in semiconductors. And he's also saying that Japan itself needs to return to the position it once had as the world's leading semiconductor manufacturer. Uh, It's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, this is a story that is going to dominate where we go next. That's right. I mean, these sorts of things about, you know, this is an interesting conversation and it's an interesting geopolitical conversation because these things like semiconductors are sort of, and I know that this is a bit of a cliche phrase, but these are the new oil. You know, you say that data is the new oil. You read about that on the cover of The Economist. Um, But but semiconductors are also the new oil. Um, And that is because they're extremely um, expensive, to produce. They use precious minerals um, in the production process. And there really are only just a few countries that have the the technology know-how, the resources, and and the manufacturing capability to produce these tiny electronic brains that run everything we use. And so there's incredible jockeying, long-term jockeying, as you suggest, Georgina, um, for who's going to lead this business. Yeah. Now, uh, chips are not only in our mobile phones, in our computers, also sometimes to be found in artwork. Uh, And it's a whole new kind of generation of art, if you like, linked up to NFTs and blockchains and all the rest of it. Um, And some of that will be showcased at the annual London Art Fair, which kicked off uh, in London uh, this week. On display, works by renowned British artists like Tracy Emin and Grayson Perry, but also a diverse international offering, an exhibition celebrating multiculturalism in the UK. Well, Monocle's Lillian Fawcett went along to the opening day of the fair and she sent this report. The Business Design Centre in Islington began life in 1862 as the venue for cattle shows. Since then the vast glass-ceilinged building has hosted circuses, balls and military tournaments, occasions now largely phased out of the social calendar, which makes it the ideal venue for the 35th edition of the London Art Fair, where this year's social change is a major theme. 
The event's 2023 gallery partner is Ben Yori. David Glasser is its chair and chief executive. Well, we're 107 years old. That's the first and most important thing. And we've evolved over these years from being a Jewish cultural institution within the Jewish community, as it was founded in Whitechapel by a Russian-French Jewish artist, uh, into an international museum that addresses the whole issue of migration and social integration and the universality of migration across different generations and across different communities. Dominican-born Tam Joseph's The Handmade Map of the World rearranges country names. The UK is Cuba, Australia is Greenland, Mexico is Saudi Arabia. It playfully asks viewers to consider how luck and fate shape nationalities. Another work by Romanian-Jewish Claire Winston shows angular, long-limbed bodies in contrasting colours. The range of works from Ben Yuri makes clear there is no one experience of migration. David is unequivocal about the role of the collection and of art in promoting social progress. The visual arts and the creative arts actually can change people's lives in terms of their attitude, their approach and their understanding. Because if people actually understand that immigrants are just happen to be different people from a different place, but they become part of today, then perhaps that in itself, just simply in itself, can reduce the suspicion and the ignorance and the coexistence that we need to have as a society. And that's why art is so important. And that's why Ben Uri, emerging from the Jewish community, emerging from an immigrant Jewish community, that's who better to tell that story and to share it. In the fair's headline photography exhibition, Beautiful Experiments, women photographers express their diasporic heritage in the domestic setting. A glass butter dish photographed by Joy Gregory, or a self-portrait of Nigerian-Italian Adaisi Iabom in her home. <laughs> Further into the labyrinth of the fair is an exhibition by another curator trying to change perceptions. Art historian Ruth Millington's Reframing the Muse invites viewers to see the subjects of and inspiration for artworks differently. We think of the muse always kind of trapped in this image that they are a reclining female nude, very submissive to an older male artist. And through my research, I realised this is absolutely not the case. And perhaps where it was a younger woman, they were actually really involved in the process, often an artist themselves. So through this show, I want to show a real diversity of muses who've worked with artists, but also ask people to consider what their role was and kind of complicate notions of the muse. So you'll see there's lots of paintings where it's not just the one muse, perhaps more than one muse, families of muses, couples, kind of, yeah, complicating what we think of as that kind of trapped image of the one muse alone in the artist studio. Ruth wants the muse to be seen as a collaborative partner in art. The collection is colourful and diverse, both in terms of style and subject. But they have one key thing in common. Their muse is named. A two-metre-high acrylic by Dutch artist Carla Cranendonk depicts Sayana, a dark-skinned woman in bright, clashing West African prints. Not all the muses are female either. 
There's plenty of male muses. We have uh, David Hockney, a great work by him of Gregory Evans, a curator who he said was the love of his life. So we're showing also that, you know, the male muse can be a romantic muse as well. And then another great painter we have is Francesca Curry, who is deliberately subverting notions of the female muse, taking masterpieces from art history and replacing the woman with her nude male muse instead. Others are deeply topical. The exhibition features three paintings by Iranian artist Golnaz Afraz, all of them young women, a tribute to the protesters back home. They're very rich and colourful style, kind of referencing all the botanicals from her home country. I'd say also the women are very kind of statuesque. They are tall, they are powerful, but then at the same time you do see these references to the fact that they have to live under censorship. So in one of the paintings, you can see the woman's eyes have been obscured by these kind of spectacles, which then have kind of floral patterns on top of them. So she's weaving kind of pattern into these paintings so they're really beautiful objects while they're also carrying quite a political message. Just as political events have thrown the objects of art into sharp relief, they've made Ben Yuri Gallery's mission all the more relevant. When we relaunched in 2001, under the tag of art identity migration, we were the only people talking about it. We were the only people committed to the whole principle and ethos of actually measuring and exploring and celebrating immigrants, their, their contribution to British visual culture. And, and then by the time the Brexit debate came on, we were on record by actually really expressing great concern because it changed from being a sensible discussion about how a country absorbs its immigrants to talking about immigrants as people rather than as a body. And that concerned us greatly. And we actually had an exhibition uh, called Art Exit rather than Brexit, uh, really trying to demonstrate the fact that unless we embrace immigration and allow people to bring new cultures, new experiences, new visions to ours, then we will become stale and we'll be get left behind. And we will miss, we'll just simply miss that immense contribution. Changes in the artistic industry, in our politics and in our lifestyles are all proudly on display at London Art Fair, which will run until Sunday the 22nd of January. For Monocle in London, I'm Lillian Fawcett. Many thanks to Lillian and my guest in the studio is Charles Hecker. Charles, you're actually off to the art fair today. That's right. I'm going this afternoon and I'm looking forward to it. I think it sounds marvellous, doesn't it? We'll report back. Uh, now, let's talk about Elizabeth Holmes. Remember her? How could you forget Elizabeth Holmes? I think in, in addition to our shared passion for word puzzles, I think we both spotted this story this morning as we were flicking through the papers. And this we're going to the Washington Post with a, a fairly bold headline that says, Elizabeth Holmes tried to flee U.S. after conviction prosecutors allege. And for those of you who don't recall Elizabeth Holmes, um, she is the Northern California entrepreneur who um, was convicted of fraud by attracting hundreds of millions of dollars into a company called Theranos, which is supposed to be a revolutionary medical diagnostic company that turned out to do nothing at all. <laughs> um, and she's on her way to jail. But what the Post tells us is that prior to the verdict coming down, Ms. Holmes booked a ticket one way to Mexico. 
um, and the travel date was for after the conviction was delivered. Um, prosecutors found out about this booking and blocked her trip. Um, she had been denied permission to travel as a flight risk, and it turns out that was a pretty good call. <laughs> now, she's got some excuses, though, as to why she needed to book that ticket. Well, she said she was going to a wedding. Um, but, you know, I don't know how long Mexican weddings last and maybe they're multiple day affairs. But to book a one way ticket to a <laughs> wedding is, is quite a commitment to the bride and groom. Oh, dear. Uh, fascinating story. I'm increasingly finding The Washington Post is becoming my favorite paper, actually. Well, you know, it's it's. Um, experiencing a period of what you might call economic turmoil at the moment. But, you know, the story of the Washington Post is a fantastic story of rebirth and regeneration. It is owned by Jeff Bezos, who has plowed millions and millions of dollars. But what was once a globally read newspaper that for a while shrank to being a local rag has returned to its prominence um, in the U.S., and in its its bureau system around the world. And, and it's a great read. It really is. Charles, we're going to give you a return ticket. We'll see you back on, <laughs> on this programme and indeed others throughout the week. I'm quite sure that's Charles Hecker. Thank you very much. And Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. Much more from me throughout the day. But for now, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.